This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's debate on the question, Immigration, a Boon or Burden to U.S. Society. This event is part of the Roop Great Debate series, and it is co-presented by UCSB's College of Letters and Science, Arts and Lectures, and the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center. My name is Susan Derwin, and I am the director of the Interdisciplinary Humanities Center. In 2000, the Roop Great Debate Series began on this campus, informed by the vision of Arthur Roop, which, in his words, was, quote, to bring the greatest minds of our time together at UCSB to discuss and debate the nation and world's vital questions, grapple with the facts, and create inspiring dialogue. The Roop Foundation supports numerous projects at high schools, universities, and in the civic realm that use debate to advance civil and reasoned public discourse. The issue under discussion tonight is a vital concern to our campus community, to the Santa Barbara community, and to all inhabitants of California, which is home to more than 10 million immigrants, no less than 27% of California's population, and is a state in which half of all children have at least one immigrant parent. Tonight, as we hear our knowledgeable debaters offer their perspectives and positions on what a just immigration policy would be, we are simultaneously affirming to quote Arthur Roop once again, the importance of civil and reasoned dialogue. Through respectful exchange, our guest speakers will move through a program that promises to deliver knowledge and insight into tonight's topic. In the latter part of the evening, audience members will have the opportunity to pose questions to our speakers. When this time comes, our moderator will invite people with questions to come to the microphones at the front of the aisles and to pose succinct questions. Before I introduce our speakers, please join me in recognizing Arthur N. Roop, who has made this valuable series possible, and Mark Henry, president of the Arthur N. Roop Foundation. We are fortunate that both men are here this evening. Our debaters tonight are Ruben G. Rombaut, Distinguished Professor of Sociology at UC Irvine, and Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Rumbaud is the author of more than 200 scholarly papers and co-author or co-editor of 18 books and special issues, including Immigrant America, A Portrait, and Legacies, The Story of the Immigrant Second Generation. Since 1991, he has co-directed the Children of Immigrants Longitudinal Study. Krikorian is the author of Open Immigration, Yay and Nay, and the, excuse me, co-author of Open Immigration, Yay and Nay, and the author of new The New Case Against Immigration, Both Legal and Illegal, and How Obama is Transforming America Through Immigration. He has also published articles in periodicals such as the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. 
The debate will be moderated by Donald M. Kerwin, Jr., Director of the Center for, Mi for Migration Studies of New York. Mr. Kerwin writes and speaks extensively on immigration policy, national security, and other issues. And let me say that far more complete biographies of our debaters and our moderator are included in tonight's program. And also, you should know that the order of opening and closing statements has been determined by the flip of a coin. Please join me now in welcoming Donald Kerwin, Jr., who will open the debate. Thank you. Hi, everyone. First of all, let me say my thank yous to the, to the Roop family, to the deans, John, Charlie, and Pierre, and thanks to Susan and her team, um, particularly Aaron and Adam, but everybody that's kind of been central to putting this event together. I think the first challenge in a debate like this one is to attract the right participants, which you've very definitely done tonight. You have two very influential and persuasive experts and Ruben and Mark, who come at these issues from different perspectives, and we should have a very informative exchange as a result. The second challenge is defining what in the immigration universe that we want to cover. This system, as you may know, is a complex one. Um, it's not particularly co cohesive, and it's an accretion of provisions from different eras that responded to different challenges. Tonight, what we're mostly going to focus on is the legal immigration system. That is, the system that governs who obtains lawful permanent residency, or LPR status, in the United States. This is opposed to the non-immigrant system, which is people who come as temporary visitors. The U.S. offers permanent status to those with family ties, employment, humanitarian claims, and diversity. In 2017, for example, just to give you a sense of this system, 46% of those who obtained lawful permanent residency were the immediate family members of U.S. citizens, that is, the spouses, minor children, and parents. 21% were in so-called family preference categories defined by other family relationships to U.S. citizens and LPRs. 12% obtained permanent status through employment-based visas. 11% were persons who were admitted as refugees and adjusted to permanent status and another 2% were persons who had been granted asylum in the United States, and 5% were persons from countries with historically low rates of immigration to the U.S. who secured a visa through a lottery system. The remaining 3 to 4% fell mostly into humanitarian categories, including trafficking survivors and Iraqis and Afghanis that worked for the U.S. government. So what are the goals and the interests that this system serves? I'm going to give you, just to start here, nine quick principles that we called, my agency called from a review of presidential signing statements of immigration laws over a 90-year period, just to kind of set the stage for tonight. Nine principles. First, families constitute the fundamental building block of society, and their integrity should be preserved. Second, immigrants embody the U.S. tradition of self-sufficiency, hard work, and drive to succeed, and they advance the nation's economic competitiveness. Third, admission policies based on national origin, race, or privilege offend the U.S. creed and civic values. Fourth, fairness and process should characterize admission 
and removal decisions. Fifth, providing haven to persons fleeing persecution and violence reflects U.S. history, tradition, and its commitment to liberty, freedom, and dignity. Sixth, all U.S. residents deserve access to the benefits of a free and open society. Seventh, a system characterized by fair, orderly, and secure migration upholds the rule of law. Eighth, illegal migration challenges U.S. sovereignty, threatens U.S. security, and devalues citizenship. Ninth, criminals and security threats flout U.S. ideals, should not be admitted, and forfeit the right to remain. We wanted to begin the debate with opening statements that are mostly on the level of context, vision, and the appropriate goals for our immigration system. And we're going to get into the specifics of how to make this system more of a boon later on. So here's the first question leading to the opening statements tonight. Are these the ones that I recited, the interests, principles, and goals that our immigration system should serve? And how have conditions in the historical context changed over the years in ways that our immigration system today should reflect? Each speaker has five minutes, and we are going to be strict on adhering to time limits tonight because we have a lot to cover. Okay, thank you. Ruben, would you come up? Good evening. It's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. My short answer to Don's nine principles is yes in general, but I'd like to offer a few remarks to put our discussion into larger contexts, globally, nationally, politically. Of the 7.5 billion people in the world today, about 250 million, just over 3%, are international migrants. The rest, almost 97% of humanity, are stayers living in the countries where they were born. Still, the global migrant stock is growing. Since World War II, labor migration has flowed increasingly from poorer to richer countries and from younger to older countries. Refugees, the least desirable migrants, move mainly from one poor country to another. According to UNHCR, an unprecedented 68.5 million people around the world today have been forced from their homes. Among them are nearly 25.4 million refugees, over half of whom are children, 3.1 million asylum seekers, and 40 million internally displaced persons. Moving to a foreign country isn't easy, even under the most propitious circumstances. Those who do tend to be young and intrepid souls, which is what makes migration the selective process it is. More immigrants come to the United States than to any country. Today, there are some 45 million here, nearly a fifth of the world's immigrant total. But only 13.8% of the U.S. population is foreign-born. Many other countries exceed that percentage, and the United States itself did too in each census from 1860 to 1920. The U.S. economy is the world's largest, with a GDP of more than $20 trillion dollars, accounting for one-fourth of global GDP, although the U.S. population is just over 4% of the world's population. And the U.S. economy generates great labor demand at both ends of the labor force, including a demand for immigrant professionals and workers. Last week, President Trump said that our country is full, but according to the consensus of demographers and economists, 
The country is not remotely full. Instead, it is one where an aging population and declining birth rates among the native-born are creating underpopulated cities and towns, vacant housing, and troubled public finances. The reality is that the second demographic transition, that is, the decline of fertility below replacement levels in rich countries, has finally caught up with the U.S. The continued decline in fertility now affects every demographic group, with an especially large decline among Hispanic women since 2006. Last year, U.S. population growth hit an 80-year low, the lowest since 1937, a result of declines in births and gains in deaths. And just today, the front page of the Los Angeles Times has this uh, front page story, California state growth hits a nadir. It's the lowest population growth ever recorded in the history of, of California. One-fourth of all counties in the United States, 746 counties, are depopulating, and 91% of them are rural. For example, more than half of Vermont's counties are shrinking, and its Republican governor in his budget statement last year said that, quote, our biggest threat is our declining labor force. Many of the problems of cities like Detroit, such as its pension liability, would become less difficult if its population would start growing. The broader cause is the aging of the American population, a factor that the U.S. will have to cope with for decades to come, and the corresponding shrinkage of a labor force which will be increasingly relied upon to pay for the pensions of larger and larger number of retirees. All of this requires serious discussion of immigration policy because of the future contributions that immigrants can make to growing the American economy and society. But what about the American polity and the state? This permanently unfinished nation of immigrants has shown a remarkable capacity to absorb tens of millions of newcomers from all classes, cultures, and countries. But that phenomenal accomplishment has historically coexisted with the senior side of the process of nation building. Much of American history can be seen as a dialectic of processes of inclusion and exclusion, and in extreme cases, of expulsions and forced removals. There has been a period in American history which has stood out to me as a great inclusion. Comparatively, I would argue the most inclusive era in American immigration history, certainly when focused on the governmental context of reception at the federal level, spanning approximately the quarter century from 1965 to 1990. Yet, to that era of inclusion, a backlash of exclusion and expulsion was to follow, accelerating since the mid-1990s, then especially after 9-11, until culminating in Trump. The United States today has now embarked on an uncertain era, almost certainly to judge from the last 27 months, one of the most tragic and shameful in the history of immigrant America. There's so much in need of reform. But without a radical change of political course, I see no real chance of making good on the national interests and principles that our immigration system should serve and reflect, such as the nine that were stated by Don Kerwin. Thank you for your attention. Good evening. Um, thanks to UCSB for uh, putting on this event. 
And I think Don's reference to the historical conditions and historical circumstances is actually key when thinking about immigration. And my uh, basic contention is that today's immigrants really aren't all that different from immigrants of the past. Yes, there are differences, but they're really not that salient. They're not all that relevant to policy. What's different is us. A modern society is different in kind from anything that's ever existed before. And the circumstances of modernity make immigration, large-scale immigration, much more problematic in a way that it wasn't uh, 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Now, even then, immigration was very contentious. We tend to look to the past, through the past, uh, you know, through rose-colored glasses often. But we made it work. And one of the reasons we were able to successfully use immigration successfully and serve a lot of the interests that Don identified was because the nature of our economy and society and polity was different from what it is today. Um, I hear this very often from people who are, uh, you know, skeptical of immigration. And they'll say, you know, my grandpa didn't use welfare. What's wrong with immigrants today? Or my grandma from Minsk wanted to become an American. What's wrong with people today? And I think we both exaggerate uh, how much immigrants in the past, uh, you know, wanted to become Americans or refused uh, public benefits. And we underestimate how, uh, what immigrants are like today. They're not that different. What's different is us. And I just wanted to briefly go over a few of those historical circumstances that make immigration much more problematic than it was in the past. First of all, we have a post-industrial knowledge-based economy. This is something that's never existed before. Uh, in the past, when we had an agricultural or manufacturing-based economy, people with little education uh, could, uh, you know, make a successful life for themselves. Americans didn't have a lot of education either, and neither did immigrants. We're in a very different situation in a post-industrial knowledge-based economy where immigration is necessary, where education is necessary not for getting a job, because immigrants work at about the same rate as the native-born, but for succeeding and moving into the middle class. And this is no one's fault. It's just a mismatch between what mass immigration inevitably is, which is people who are compared to Americans less, have less education, because people who are very prosperous do immigrate, but not in very large numbers. Um, the other big difference, the next big difference, is we now have a large tax-supported system of social provision for the poor, a welfare state, and even more broadly, just a large government sector in a way that we didn't in the past. And large-scale immigration of people with little education means that they get jobs, but they, don't, they are not able to earn a lot of money. It's just the way it is. And because they're not able to earn a lot of money, they qualify for a whole variety of public benefits. About half of families headed by immigrants use at least one federal welfare program. This is not a moral critique. It's simply a result, of, an inevitable result, of large immigration into uh, society, a post-industrial society with a large welfare state. Uh, assimilation is another area where conditions, historical conditions, are fundamentally different. 
transportation communications technology has shrunk the world, and this has been a boon in a whole variety of ways. But it also uh, reduces the incentive and necessity for newcomers to pull up roots and plant them in the new country. A century ago, two centuries ago, you couldn't hop on a plane and go to your cousin's wedding in County Mayo or in Palermo and then come back after a three-day weekend. Now you can. And this fundamentally changes the calculus of um, assimilation. And finally, um, and this is something Ruben referred to, is that modern societies all have lower fertility rates. In other words, people have fewer children. Well, large-scale immigration into a society that has, where the natives are having fewer children, has a much more, a much more significant demographic effect, often sometimes even a transformative effect, in a way that isn't true in a society that um, has, where the natives and the immigrants both have very high rates of fertility. Anyway, the basic, the punchline is mass immigration and modern society are not compatible with each other. And this is a relatively new phenomenon and necessitates a re-examination of our immigration policies. Thanks. So it sounds like we have an enthusiastic audience outside, but I'm actually glad that they're outside so we can get on with the agenda. What we're going to do now is I'm going to pose six questions. Uh, each debater will respond to each question for two minutes, and then we'll have four minutes of dialogue amongst ourselves, and then after that we'll go to questions and answers. So what we wanted to do was to move from context and theory to a more practical question to start off the debate. And the question is, how would you reform the U.S. immigration system to align with your views on the, in, on the principles and interests it should serve and to make it responsive to current conditions, needs, and challenges? How would you change it to make it more of a boon, which is our question for today? Who goes first? Why don't you start? In two minutes. Um, <laughs> One minute I'll give you a minute seconds. each for two points, uh, but I would say first I would do it with humility, with humanity, and with ambition. I would begin with the awareness that immigration reform processes are inherently political and enormously complicated, and immigration laws historically have been riven by unintended consequences, all of which are reasons to reflect on the limits of public policies, particularly when what is sought is nothing less than to control a world on the move with the U.S. as the main destination. Politics and policymaking, like life itself, are more tangled, uncertain, and contradictory than our policy recommendations sometimes seem to suggest. Indeed, policymakers are condemned to try to control a future they cannot predict by reacting to a past that won't be repeated. But nonetheless, they are forced and faced with an imperative need to act that ought not to be ignored as a practical or political matter. Second minute. That said, I would call for an independent uh, immigration commission study with the best available science and scholarship uh, to study the contours of U.S. labor markets and economic needs and other national interests in keeping with traditional liberal democratic values and an inclusive vision of national identity, much as you express, uh, Don and uh, as can best be met 
by equitable immigration. In addition, the Commission should pursue a systematic, critical, fact-based assessment of the myriad uh, problems, backlogs, and bottlenecks of the current immigration system, the legal immigration system, some of which are truly Kafkaesque, um, how they came to be and how they can be resolved and prevented with a reform system that is coherent, that is flexible, that is adjustable, and that is on top of changing uh, world and national conditions. Finally, this study needs to encompass all forms of legal admissions, refugee and asylum policies and needs, the various temporary statuses, and the legalization of the system as a whole, including the undocumented. Um, the, I appreciate Ruben's um, allude or reference to humility. Uh, and the fact is, in making policy, in making immigration policy, it seems to me the first rule should be do no harm. And from the, con the conclusions I draw from my broader perspective on this is that a continent-spanning nation of a third of a billion people that invented the modern world doesn't actually need any immigration. But that doesn't mean the policy should be zero immigration, but rather zero-based budgeting, in a sense, of immigration. In other words, you start at zero because there is no actual necessity for immigration, but then you look at which groups, which kinds of people have such a compelling case to be admitted that we admit them despite the problems immigration can create in a modern society. And that would be generally three components because all immigration, pretty much all immigration, uh, comes from three elements, three streams, family, skills or employment, and humanitarian. And for family immigration, I would limit it to husbands, wives, and little children of U.S. citizens. That's not limited currently. It shouldn't be limited. It wasn't limited even during the, uh, when the immigration was reduced dramatically in the 1920s. And that's a lot of people. That's 350,000, 400,000 people a year out of the 1.1 million that we take. Then for skills, the uh, second category, it really is a, I mean, it's a decision of how high you want to set the bar for skills. In other words, how, how skilled a immigration flow are you looking for? My preference would be Einstein immigration. Set the bar high. The point would be the admission of those who are um, the tops in their fields on the planet. And we already have provisions for people like that, but we also have uh, in our skilled and employment immigration uh, area, we take a lot of people who don't fit that description. And then finally, humanitarian, which I can get into, and that'll be more than two minutes, but the goal for humanitarian immigration, refugees in particular, should be not to bring them here, because honestly, we do that out of selfish reasons to make ourselves feel better, but rather to use those resources, leverage them, to help many, many more people abroad because if the point of refugee protection is to do the most good with whatever money you're spending, bringing refugees here is an extraordinarily inefficient way of helping people. Okay, these poor guys have been limited to two minutes. I know that they're gonna have a lot of dialogue among themselves at this point. So the two responses were commissioned to study the legal immigration system and to create a coherent, flexible system that furthers a lot of the interests that were described. And then Marx was immediate family members of US citizens, uh, highly skilled migrants, and no, humani no humanitarian well, migration, no, but, but contributions to migrants where they, <coughs> where they are in 
host communities in other countries. Is that, yeah, basically, yes. Please feel free to respond to each other, I guess. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, <laughs> I've left them speechless. <laughs> and that's a very, very <laughs> rare uh, <laughs> phenomenon. With, we have two minutes? Is that the response? We have four minutes. We, we, have, minutes? Uh, we're we now have three and a half minutes. Four minute exchange right, right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've lost track of the minutes <laughs> and the this. And, um, so instead of numbers, I'm going to try to tell a couple of stories. And stories have Velcro. And making, maybe that can illustrate some of the issues involved here. Uh, if I heard you right, uh, Mark, you said that you, the U.S. really doesn't need any. You started at zero. And then you would add uh, to zero for compelling reasons, three, the, sure. three different types, right? So you had family, labor, and humanitarian. The, the refugees wouldn't, or the asylees wouldn't come here. Rather, you would use them someplace, you would send them someplace else in the world to help other people. Um, and then the skills, you would set a high bar, uh, the Einstein bar, uh, you know, the tops in the planet. And then uh, the family's just immediate family. Well, here are two quick stories. Uh, that would leave my entire family out, uh, you know, completely. Uh, Multi-generational. <laughs> we came here as refugees, uh, so presumably we would have been sent someplace else and I would have never made it to UC Santa Barbara uh, or have a children and now a grandson. That's my apple of my eye. Uh, my father-in-law, uh, the father of my wife, was Mexican, and let me tell you, I married up. Uh, my father-in-law was 16 years old in a little rancho in Mexico when he crossed the border by himself, the Rio Grande, into the Valley of Texas and started earning $1 an hour picking fruit. Uh, he married, he had a, less than a second grade education, way below the Einstein uh, level bar. He married a, a woman that also had the same amount of little to no education. Ended up going to Michigan to work in the steel mills of, of Detroit because he had an uncle that, that worked there, and that's where he had the rest of the family, including my wife. And now, um, you, you probably should let yeah. Mark yeah. speak for so. Well, my, my, the bottom line is that this family that started like that without an Einstein uh, bar ended up producing children that include uh, professors with uh, uh, endowed chairs at Princeton University, and a bunch of corporations, et cetera, and you would never have predicted sure. that from the 16-year-old. Ruben is right. The problem, <clears throat> of course, is that <clears throat> anecdotes can go both ways. We, don't, we shouldn't be making policy based on ind individual immigrants who were Horatio Alger stories and overcame um, adversity, nor should we be making broad immigration policy based on negative individual anecdotes of rapists and murderers and what have you. Neither one of those tells us anything about immigration policy as a whole. Policy has to be made based on broad trends and, and likelihoods of different outcomes. And the fact is that um, immigrants who come with relatively little education don't do that well. Their kids do better than they do, there's no question about it, but especially if we're looking at, we're talking about Mexican immigrants, the data suggests now that the grandchildren and even great-grandchildren of earlier Mexican immigrants don't actually progress that much beyond the children of the immigrants. In other words, immigrant 
initially comes, does not earn a lot of money. His kid does better than him. But what we're seeing is that for immigrants who come, for immigrant groups, not individuals, there's always exceptions, but for immigrant groups who come with little education, the kids do better. But then the grandchildren do about as well as the kids, and the great-grandchildren don't do much better either. And this is an inescapable consequence okay. of a modern society. Thank you. So you guys have another bite at the apple here, because I'm, I'm going to ask this, a two-part question. One is very similar to the question that we just had, which is, you know, again, what's your ideal immigration system look like in terms of categories and numbers admitted? Would you expand or contract legal immigration? And then how would you make the system, and I think this is very important, <coughs> flexible enough to adapt to changing conditions so that it admits who you want to admit in real time? And I think that's a big challenge. Yeah, I mean, it is a challenge. I and laid the, out. We're on, to the two, we're on to the two-minute Yeah, yeah, the two-minute part, okay. right, I yeah. understand. Um, I mean, I sort of laid out what I wanted, but I didn't actually get into the, uh, at least sort of what the numbers would be. So if you figure um, husbands, wives, and little kids of U.S. citizens, 350,000, let's say, a year roughly. And the other two categories, I mean, let's just for round numbers say they add up to 50,000, you end up with about 400,000 people a year. That's about 40% or so of what we take now. Um, but is more than any other country in the world takes as far as actual immigrants go, as opposed to, um, you know, guest workers that are marched from barracks to work, you know, the kind of thing they do in the Middle East. Um, and so it's, it's, it's not like there's no immigration, it's just less. And the idea of what you were talking, responsiveness, flexibility, I don't, I don't think government is capable of that kind of responsiveness. I mean, if government were able to determine in, in rapid, in a short enough time, what the economic circumstances were, what, um, you know, unemployment rate or whatever it is, and then change immigration policy accordingly. That's sort of, that's the kind of thing that people have in mind. If that sort of thing could work, if government were capable of that, the Soviet Union would still be around. I mean, that kind of responsiveness to economic change by the state isn't possible. It just doesn't work because by the time the government found out what the unemployment rate was, and then went through the whole bureaucratic process to figure, okay, well, now this category will go down, or if unemployment rate went down, this category will go up. The circumstances will have completely changed. So I actually don't think immigration should be responsive to changing conditions. It should be a sort of baseline rules that everybody knows what they are, and then that we then operate within those rules, and other things, of course, will change, but immigration policy would stay basically um, sta is st uh, stable. Thank you. Ru Ruben? Well, it won't come as a surprise to say that I disagree mm -hmm. oh, no, with, really? with my friend Mark here. Uh, but again, really done in two minutes. I think they have a just, common enemy, don't you all? I'll focus on, <laughs> on one, main, one main element of uh, a very complicated system of categories and numbers and structures uh, that really also, that too requires research to spell out the complexities of all of that and the assumptions that are in, in, entailed uh, in some of the remarks that uh, Mark made, for example. Um, there's the assumption that people that come with family visits, with family visas, as opposed to those that come with employment visas, that they are less skilled, uh, educationally disadvantaged, et cetera, and that therefore those who come with employment visas are 
make uh, superior benefits to the society, but from what little research has been done by type of visa, over time, the socioeconomic uh, outcomes of people that come with these different types of visas end up being not all that different. Uh, I would say, and I would stress, number one, that uh, not only reduce the numbers, uh, I would keep the, until uh, rigorous research tells me otherwise, I would keep numbers pretty much including the categories as they are, until we can find uh, a reasoned way to begin to making the, mm-hmm. these changes. I would absolutely uh, remain with family unit as a central goal of U.S. immigration policy and as a pillar of the system, just as it has been its hallmark for the past 54 years. Family unity is critical for promoting immigrant integration. Uh, Einstein himself is not going to promote immigrant integration or the social and economic well-being and intergenerational mobility of immigrant families. Uh, families are a buffer and a socioeconomic safety net for new Americans. Families build businesses, etc. Uh, but reform is needed there too to address problems like the lengthy visa backlogs, the processing delays, restrictions, the biased assumptions about family structure, the bans on reentry, family separations, do both to migration uh, law and rules and enforcement practices. Enforcement practices themselves need to be uh, need to deprioritize uh, deportations of those with significant family ties to the United States. And finally, much has to be repaired with what was wrong and what was wrought by the era in 1996. Uh, the U.S. needs uh, to up its responsibility um, for for and doing its share of resettling refugees. What is go- at a time when you were at a peak, uh, unprecedented number of refugees, the United States is going down, down, down. Uh, it makes no sense. I would set a much higher cap for refugees. Okay. So, please Do respond. Do we have the four-minute yeah, thing here? Four okay, minutes, well, there's yep. two points I wanted to bring up. Um, I actually forgot what the first one was, but the other one was, when thinking about family immigration, this is one of the things that I try to point out. And basically, this is something you all need to think through for yourselves, too. What do we mean by family? I mean, I, I, I said husbands, wives, and little kids, nuclear family. Um, we now have a definition of family in our law that includes adult siblings, adult married sons and daughters, adult unmarried sons and daughters, parents of adult U.S. citizens. And, you know, I mean, among the questions you have to ask is, why stop there? Why not? first cousins. Why not aunts and uncles? I mean, aunts and uncles and first cousins do come, but they come as a sort of second or third, you know, link after immigrants come. We don't have categories for them. But why not? That's the first thing. Where do you, how do you define family and where do you draw the line? You can make a plausible argument in different ways of where to draw the line, but you need to think about why this line and not another line. And the other thing is, this this is the point I, I forgot, is the Um, Ruben referred to the long waiting lists, and there are, in fact, something like 4 million people for whom petitions have been submitted to immigrate, almost all of them family, most of them anyway, um, who are waiting in line because of the numerical cap, so they have to basically wait for their number to come up. Well, the way you deal with that is either dramatically increase the numbers or narrow the definition of who gets to come in so you don't have long waiting lists. I agree waiting lists are a problem, but the consequence, I mean, if your concern is we shouldn't have very long waiting lists, the issue is, 
Do you raise the numbers dramatically, or do you narrow who gets, who qualifies? Okay, thank you. Ruben, you want to? You're eating up your time, Ruben. I'm eating up my time. <laughs> well, sometimes it, it helps to use some time to think you know, before you. You don't have time. We don't, time. don't, I don't have time to think. think. No. That's why we need more immigrants. You know, <laughs> <clears throat> the four million plus uh, backlog uh, affects primarily one category uh, of the visa, the family visa uh, preferences, and that's the one for brothers and sisters. Uh, of U.S. citizens, which is by far the, the largest and oversubscribed one. Uh, it also affects some countries more than others, uh, countries with a lot of immigrants in the United States, like Mexico and the Philippines, and now China and India uh, are going to have a, a lot more. Uh, and the more those uh, lines uh, keep getting longer and the more t time passes, the, the more it incentivizes people then to come and just to come with a non-immigrant visa and then overstay their visa and then add to the mm -hmm. undocumented population. Those are the kinds of things that have to get resolved by a reform of the immigration system. The, the, the issue of, the, of the, that one category of brothers and sisters is the most problematic one of all of the family visa categories. But the parents of immigrants and the, the children of immigrants are, are immediate family ties that have everything to do with what I was saying a moment ago about the, the functions and, and significance of, of, of families in promoting immigrant integration. And most of what we have what we mean when we talk about the success of an immigration system. Um, I don't know if I have any seconds left, but, <laughs> but I think that gives you enough of a flavor. Yeah, thank you. The, the main reasons for bringing immigrants that I set out in my opening uh, remarks are, have nothing to do with what has been said here in, in the last uh, couple of minutes. There are larger structural reasons for which immigration is a necessity in the, given American demography and given the American economy, the, the population of cities, the shrinking of labor forces, and the crisis that's coming with Social Security and Medicare. So this gets into our next question, so let me just jump to okay. it. Thank you. So, and, I, and let me just make a, a quick pitch. We've just done a paper which we're going to publish this week on these backlogs, and we're finding that in some categories for some nationalities, they're up to 70 years at this point, so it really is a huge problem. So the, question, the third question is this. At the end of the day, how would you measure the success of U.S. immigration policies? And what's the right time frame for measuring the success of them? Which I think is crucially important. You want to go first? Um, sure. Um, the successful integration of immigrants and their children, the first and second generations, who together account for about one in every four Americans today, should be seen as a national priority. Determining, uh, and depending on the dimensions of success, um, which should be defined broadly and not re be reduced to a fiscal dollar or a one slice of GDP, uh, different metrics and different time frames are required. Um, for example, just two recent examples, two 500-plus page reports from the National Academy of Sciences were recently published, one on the integration of immigrants in American society, and the second on the economic and fiscal consequences of immigration in American society. Each of them is, uh, has the best metrics, if you will, the, the, the best constellation of the, of the knowledge base that we have up to this point. Um, each is uh, bigger than the Mueller report, uh, <laughs> uh, so you can get all the tables and 
and, and, and so on that you, that you want, and nothing is redacted uh, <laughs> uh, in, in, on, on top of everything else. Um, I mentioned the impact of immigrants in depopulating cities and towns. Well, that's part of how I would measure success. The revitalization of communities, I would measure it that way. Their economic and entrepreneurial uh, dynamism in creating companies like Apple, Amazon, Google, those are all uh, companies created by immigrants and created not in a far lorn uh, industrial era, but right now, today, and right here in, in, in California, in, in, let alone the tens of thousands of other businesses that are much smaller. Um, the fact that most Nobel Prizes uh, earned for the United States have been earned by immigrants, uh, the lion's share of them, uh, and that in so many ways across their life course, immigrants are not only workers but also <coughs> consumers and taxpayers who can help to right the coming crisis in Social Security and Medicare. Uh, they're families with children that are diversifying American <coughs> culture, cuisine, music, art. Can you imagine if we only had English food here and no Mexican food, Chinese food? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, and, and, and the art. and um, Those are things that ought to be measured too. They're also part of success. They're also part of the contributions of immigrants to, to an American society that is made better because of their presence. Thank you. Let's go to Mark. Um, the, I'm glad you asked about the time frame because there's a pretty long time frame uh, to decide whether an immigration policy has been successful or not. It's really not something, it's not something like a quarterly earnings report. Um, you know, you need to look a generation or two in the future to see whether an immigration policy succeeded, really. And precisely because of that, prudence is called for. We, have, we need to have a much more modest and cautious approach to something because, let's say, given that long time frame, at the end of, say, 40 years, we decide this really didn't, you know, this really was not, this didn't work out that well. It had, it had more minuses than pluses. It always has pluses. Every policy has benefits. Also, every policy has costs. If we decide after two generations that the costs were greater, well, then what do we do about it? Um, this is precisely why it seems to me that immigration policy, precisely because it can't be undone, because once people are here, they're here, we've lawfully admitted them, they become naturalized <coughs> citizens, they have children, they're now part of us. Um, you, be precisely because that can't be, you can't rewind the film, we need to approach the whole issue much more carefully and much more um, humbly. And as far as how in the end I would define success, it's have the immigrants and most particularly their descendants become us. Have we adopted each other successfully? Um, and, uh, you know, that's the, uh, because that's what immigration is. It's essentially the nation adopting people from out who aren't born into it. And um, if those people truly come to see themselves as the heirs and descendants of, of you know, the pilgrims and the founders and, every, and us, then, then it's succeeded. If not, then it hasn't. That's, and how do you undo it at that point? Thank you. So we have four minutes, and you want to jump in on? It sounded like integration or assimilation you were talking about yes. at the end yeah. there. So. Yeah, I'd like to say some comments about assimilation. I think you mentioned that earlier as well, integration, and, uh, and also the, the, these last comments about 
at the end of the proverbial day, uh, you started your question, uh, it's about are they going to become us and they see themselves as belonging to a narrative that leads to right. the founders. Well, the founders were just about all of them slave owners. Um, I mean, there's a lot of things that we can talk about the, uh, the founders. Mostly. And uh, George Washington was a slave owner. Thomas sure. Jefferson was a slave owner. Benjamin Franklin didn't have anything to do with that, I, I, I'll, I'll grant you. Um, my point is that it's not about them becoming us on our terms. And them have to be exactly what we say that they have to become. And we don't get to do any changing back. Um, let me give you one example. In, in the process, I mean, assimilation uh, takes two. You know, it's like tango. It takes two to tango, it takes two to assimilate. You are not going to have Mexican food and Chinese food and so on unless you adopt some of, of what uh, others bring to you uh, and not just force them to a diet of English food with all of the health consequences of that. Um, <laughs> uh, in fact, immigrants come very healthy to the United States and uh, as they Americanize, Americanization is hazardous to your health and to your diet and to your marriage and to your GPA and to all kinds of other stuff like that. Um, considered language. Uh, part of becoming us presumably means learning English. You have, if there's one thing that becoming American means is you got to learn English and preferably English only as the litmus test of Americanization. The problem with that is that historically and to this day, although it's beginning to change, especially now in California a little bit, um, the United States is known as a language graveyard. This is where languages come to die. Ironically, we gotta go to, uh, yeah, yeah, this is, I mean, the, well, you know, the I fact is, though, that we are, I mean, we're welcoming immigrants into our national home. And obviously, they will, in certain ways, change us. Uh, you know, Rupin said, we're all going to eat English food. Well, you know, nobody ate hamburgers before the Germans got here. Um, the fact is, immigrants bring various, they bring culture with them, some of which we adopt, some of which <clears throat> we don't. We don't eat a lot of liverwurst. I think the Germans probably brought that, and I think people kind of uh, broadly decided maybe this is something we really don't want to have anything to do with. That's a normal market thing, and that's, that's perfectly uh, natural and healthy. I'm talking about psychologically and emotionally. Um, and there, um, Larry Fuchs, who was uh, at Brandeis University a long time ago, wrote a book called The American Kaleidoscope on this issue, and he cited something he had referred to in an earlier book some Japanese-American kids, Nisei kids, their parents were Japanese immigrants in Hawaii, at a high school at the Thanksgiving um, program they were giving. And this was a heavily Japanese-American student body, and so two Japanese-American kids were doing this recitation, you know, with the paper pilgrim hat cut out and all that kind of stuff. And they referred to our pilgrim forefathers. Obviously, biologically, they're not descended from the set, first settlers of the United States, but emotionally and psychologically they had come to accept them as their ancestors. When I give the speech at a naturalization swearing-in ceremony, that's kind of the theme of my speech, that the Sri Lankan cab driver who, became, who becomes a citizen at that ceremony is spiritually present as an American now at the signing of the Declaration of Independence or the raising of the flag in Iwo Jima. That is ultimately 
the sign of a successful or unsuccessful immigration policy. And that applies to Australia or France or anywhere else. That's the whole point, is how do you make new citizens of your polity? It's the, it's the issue of patriotic assimilation. Yes, exactly. Can I respond okay. to that? And well, I, we're already I, over four I, I just wanted to finish oh, your we're thought. Four. Yeah, we're on to the next. But the, <laughs> the, I, I know you wanted to say that the language graveyard doesn't service in the global economy. Was that what you were going to say? Well, in part, monolingualism is a curable <laughs> disease, yeah. it, you know, it turns out. And the United States is falling behind the rest of the world just, in a global, in ten, a global economy uh, by not having uh, the citizens of this country being fluent in at least two languages. Uh, immigrants bring that to the yeah, United States free of charge. Yeah, Thank the you. fact is, though, the reason we, ha we are a monolingual country is because you can drive for four days continuously and everybody speaks English. That is actually essentially unraveling Babel. Not um, in the Tower of Babel. Well, not in California, yeah. But you can get by in English. Let me put that okay, everywhere. Let's, let's but my, but, but, but yeah. my point is that, you know, that we speak English. English is the world language. We're actually, that's an enormous advantage for us. We're not going <coughs> to have, look, I speak, I grew up speaking Armenian. I actually didn't speak English until I went to kindergarten. But my Armenian isn't that great. I mean, I can speak normally, but I can't do business in Armenian. And frankly, very, very few children of immigrants have a mastery of whatever language it is their grandparents or parents spoke that would lead to that kind okay. of international usability. Thank you. We're going to go from a, a controversial issue to a more controversial issue now. No, no. <laughs> We're going from legal immigration to the US undocumented population. And we're going to do the same 2 2 4 um, um, exercise here. So, 11 million undocumented people in the United States, a group that includes DACA recipients, a group, a group that includes people in family based visa backlogs, a group that's getting older and older. You know, I think 20% of them have been here for 20 years or more. What do we do about this situation in this, these populations? Mark, Let do you want to take wanna... this one first? Yeah. Um, the. <coughs> The, the reason we actually have about 11 million illegal immigrants and it's not higher is because there's a lot of churn actually in the illegal population. There's a core that has been here a long time and then there are people who are relatively recent arrivals. Our research suggested that during the first six years of the Obama administration, the illegal population didn't change that much total, but something like two and a half million new illegal immigrants joined that population, which means two and a half million either died, but mostly they didn't. They left, went home. Some of them finagled legal status and stopped being illegal immigrants. The basic point is the lot of churn. So the first step is by more effective enforcement of immigration laws, fewer people allowed in, more of the recent ones who are not rooted as deeply are uh, induced to leave. And you have a smaller, let's say, ends up being 8 million illegal immigrants. Well, then we amnesty them. I'm, I'm actually, I'm okay. We do tax amnesties, we do parking ticket amnesties. The point of an amnesty is to clean up the mistakes of the past, in a sense, by legalizing, giving people green cards, just rip the Band-Aid off, in my opinion, get it over with. None of this 13-year jumping through hoops baloney, paying fines, which will never be paid, they'll all be waived. All of that stuff that's been in the legislation in the past is all just political razzle-dazzle. If you're gonna amnesty people, you should do it the way we did it 30 plus years ago, you know, they had some very minimal requirements. They had to take an English class and a civics class, and then they got green cards. But the issue is never this amnesty. The question is, 
Is it simply teeing up the next amnesty for the next 11 million illegal immigrants? In other words, how do we make sure we don't have the same problem recreating itself? That's the key issue, and that's why all the legislation that has come forward on this has never really addressed it. They have all made the same mistake as the 1986 immigration law, which was legalize the people who are here first in exchange for promises to enforce the law in the future, promises which were not kept and were never going to be kept. Okay, thanks. Well, surprise, Mark. Here's a, a I've been saying this point. for 20 years, so. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not going to yeah. agree with everything you okay. said. Uh, <laughs> Some of it is good enough. But uh, you cannot maintain um, an underclass of 11 million people. The good news is that the latest uh, estimate I saw was 10.7, and it keeps going down. It was 12 million at its peak in around 2006. Uh, it started really going down, especially with the loss of about 1.3 million uh, undocumented Mexican immigrants uh, over the, the years that follow. Uh, because of the Great Recession, uh, number one, they the shedding of jobs, 850,000 jobs were being lost a month, construction jobs in Las Vegas and so on. All of that had a lot to do with uh, the economics of, of return. And the other factor has been the fact that since about that time as well, uh, especially after, not only after the 1996 loss, but after 9-11, and then the creation of what uh, you remember the phrase, a formidable machinery, of enforcement of ICE and, and all the rest of it was created has led to millions of people being deported. Um, President Obama, by the way, uh, was called the deporter-in-chief for a reason. Three million people were de deported during the eight years of the Obama administration, two million during the George uh, W. Bush administration, and those two combined uh, the entire, all the rest of uh, American history combined doesn't come close to the totals reach uh, in recent years. There are serious, serious costs to becoming deportation nation um, as opposed to a nation of immigrants. Um, I have to uh, say also with Mark, you have to legalize this population. And the issue is how you legalize it in a way that, fa that is fair, and all the, the principles that you listed out at the beginning. And at the same time, and here I also agree with Mark, um, I think the, the last legalization program under IRCA in 1986 that ended up legalizing 2.7 million people uh, did not have the assurances and the, the, with penalties attached and, and so on to ensure that uh, undocumented population in the future after a coming amnesty would remain uh, as low as, as possible, and nothing will be allowed to grow to the levels that it is today. Yeah. Part of the, re the growth to the levels that it is today are because of uh, these Kafkaesque problems that need to be resolved uh, and will help. And by the way, one of these days we're going to run out of uh, we're going to run out of uh, hoping that Mexican laborers will come to work as before because uh, Mexico itself, the rest of the world is changing. You can't keep. Uh, expecting these uh, cheap labor pools in that. Okay, so yeah, we've, run, we've run over a little bit, but we still, we have we're into our four minutes now. So yeah, why I mean, don't we take why don't we take two minutes and? Yeah, okay. I mean, it was I, a, but I'm just the reason we run over is because I'm in such shock that there's been such agreement. On this yeah. Question. <laughs> well, there's, let me. There's two points I wanted to make. One is deportation. If you're not willing to deport people, you're for open borders. That's just there's no there's no way to uh, there's no way to sugarcoat that. 
because if there are limits and rules, people who violate those limits and rules, even if they're not criminals, even if they're not killers, they're just regular working people, but they violated the various limits and strictures of immigration law, if those people can't be deported, unless they're criminals, then you're for open border. You are for unlimited immigration, because that means anybody can get in, and once they get in, they get to stay. The other point, um, what was the last point you brought up? Uh, I'm sorry. About work, the need for Mexican Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And, and Ruben is right, that the kind of transformations we're seeing that I referred to also, you know, the urbanization, the fall in birth rates, this is a universal human phenomenon. There's only about seven countries uh, Mali, Chad, Somalia, uh, Yemen, I think, and Afghanistan, that aren't seeing declines in fertility. Mexico's what's called total fertility rate, the number of kids the average woman is expected to have, is, has, is close to ours now and will almost certainly go below the replacement level you need, where mom and dad each have a kid, basically two kids. Um, other countries have much lower fertility rates than the United States does. China is much lower, even apart from the one-child thing. Korea, Taiwan, Japan, Iran has a fertility rate below ours. Tunisia has a fertility rate. This is a universal human phenomenon. Using immigration is, doesn't, isn't going to fix anything. It's just okay. kind of a band-aid to put off the necessary adjustments we have to make to deal with this new reality. Thank you. Ruben? Well, sorry, Mark. I came but, in right uh, in two minutes. Uh, I, <laughs> I uh, have reached the limit of my agreements. Okay, uh, that's all right. So that's but, <clears throat> but I, you know, I did the best I could there for a while. Um, <clears throat> I don't, there's not enough time to get into all the points that you made about uh, African countries and fertility and what that has to do with. I, I'll go back and just stick with the, the main points that uh, in about a third of my five minutes at the opener, I try to lay out. This, is, this has uh, multiple parts. You can, I can read the tea leaves, the demographic tea leaves into the future, uh, the, the, the coming crisis uh, in, in the pension systems, uh, et cetera. This country, many communities throughout this country are becoming communities where there are more coffins than cribs, um, where young people are leaving uh, and leaving a, a, a shrunk uh, workforce that will not be able to sustain economically these places. Um, and there's no way that with native fertility below replacement level, that's going to make itself up without immigration. In the meantime, the, with the topic here had been, what are we gonna do with the millions and millions of, of people that are here in uh, an undocumented status and at risk at any moment of being detained and deported? Uh, when President Trump came in, uh, at one point, uh, President Obama in around 2014 or so on issued uh, the, 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 Mor the Morton memos that said, we're gonna prioritize who we're going to detain and deport, and it'll be people with, with criminal records and so on, and people that are, are, are law-abiding, et cetera, we're not gonna prioritize those people for deportation. When President Trump came in, he said, I wanna deport all 11 million. And it doesn't matter whether you have a criminal record, you don't have a criminal record. In the first 14 months of the, of the Trump administration, ICE just felt that he was given permission to just okay. go and do exactly that. And the result has been 
family separations, not like we saw at the border last year, but family separations that are taking place every day invisibly in communities throughout the United States with devastating consequences, not only for all of those families, the millions of families, but for the United States. Okay, thank you. I, we have a kind of a related question now, which, which is about the very high levels of um, migration that the United States and, and other countries have been experiencing from residents of the Northern Triangle states of Central America. That's been going on for six years in a, in a very heavy way, but it was going on very significantly before then, and it's escalated this year. So simple question, what's the solution to this challenge, this terrible challenge? Do you want to go first? Sure, uh, although the word, the word solution is not, it's a technical word that you kind of apply to how are we going to solve this technical problem, and then here's the technical solution. Give me another this, word. This is not, I'm going to go with your word. Um, <laughs> We don't have time to come up with no new words. We uh, don't have time to complain about it. <laughs> <laughs> or one for Don. Um, first, we have got to recognize the extent to which these problems in these Northern Triangle countries, specifically Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, are reactions to the US legacy in the region for decades. They call them banana republics. <clears throat> um, there have been coup after coup after coup. Uh, the Jacobo Arbenz uh, democratically elected government of Guatemala in 1954 uh, was deposed by a CIA coup. In 2009, another coup in Honduras, and that was funded by the State Department. And you could go on and the, all the, the, the wars in, in El Salvador and, and Guatemala uh, during the, the 80s, uh, et cetera, et cetera. For, one of the things we have to talk about that we haven't touched on is the connection between U.S. foreign policies and U.S. immigration policies and responses to humanitarian crisis, to refugee flows, to asset flows. Well, they, they are interconnected, and you need to examine uh, the U.S. role in the creation of, of, of these conditions and of these flows uh, as step one. Um, it happened with... In, with the Vietnam War, it happened with the Iraq War. I mean, th there are all kinds of other examples that you can give that end up being reflected down the line without anyone having planned it in very large immigrant communities uh, in the United States. As to what goes on at the border right now by families fleeing violence from the th countries that have the highest murder rates in the planet right now, and they're trying and coming right to uniform officers and asking for asylum at the border, and what they're getting is Zero tolerance, separation of uh, even newborns at, at the border, uh, children in cages, people being put on the other side of the border to wait in Mexico indefinitely until the, the time comes. Uh, President Trump called them con jobs. He called them animals. He called them, uh, this is not, this is a humanitarian crisis. And it has to be seen for what it is. It's also a moral catastrophe. And um, this ought not to be allowed to happen one more day. Uh, and, and that will require a political solution because no matter how many uh, reams of data and, and, uh, and so on I can provide the current administration, they're going to continue in this, this kind of... Thank you. The, Mark. Um, I'm afraid my uh, agreeing with Rupen has come to an end too. This is entirely a, false, entirely a false narrative. This is not to say that in Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, things are great. They're not. They're better than they are in Congo, 
but they're not. There's obviously, but, but bad conditions are a, necessary, are a necessary but not sufficient condition for creating this kind of novel immigration flow. It is unprecedented. It's unaccompanied minors. Unaccompanied is a misnomer because they're all brought by smugglers, but they're not coming with adults. Or families, at least one adult with at least one child, often their own child, often not. Um, that is unprecedented, and it started in 2012, and it really started in a big way in the wake of President Obama's DACA declaration. It gained strength and really kind of broke into the public consciousness in uh, 2014 and has continued to accelerate it. It sort of declined a little, went up, declined, but the, the trend is consistently upward. And it is happening because we create the incentives for people to do this. I sent a team down in 2014 to South Texas. Um, one of them was a Pulitzer Prize winning former reporter, lived in Mexico for many years, speaks English, uh, Spanish fluently. He talked to people at the McAllen, Texas bus station who had come over and were released by the Border Patrol. And there was this Guatemalan woman he talked to, came with a friend, each of them brought a kid or two with them. And he asked, you know, what, what, why'd you come? What, what was the reason for you to come? And she was quite frank. She said, back in Guatemala, we were watching CNN, and CNN said that if you brought a kid with you, they'd let you go. And so we figured, let's give it a try. And that is exactly what is happening. We are rewarding people who come and say they fear return to their home country, or they bring a kid with them, or both, by releasing them into the United States, giving them some kind of date, uh, court date, some of which they'll attend, some of which they won't. Uh, and at the end of the process, the vast majority do not get asylum because they don't qualify, but nobody has the resources or inclination to go look for them and remove them from the country. And until asylum applicants who are unsuccessful are returned expeditiously to their home countries to show people back home that they can't get away with it, it's going to continue and it's going to accelerate. We're running a little behind. Should we jump to the last sure, question? Sure, Do you guys let's want to do, do quick responses? To no, that? Well, I'd, I'd like to say okay. something well, I in response to, to that. A minute? Can you do it in a minute? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I can... I have a sister that's been working at the border for the last uh, two, two years. And she has interviewed thousands of, of, of families. Uh, she speaks Spanish. For, for every Guatemalan woman, you say that uh, someone says that was watching CNN and it was because Obama passed DACA and that's why they came. I'll see you a thousand stories of people that were raped, that were threatened with murder, that were uh, battered, uh, that their child was going to be raped, that their child was going to be pulled into this gang. And they left in fear of their lives. People don't walk 2,000 miles under those kinds of conditions and then ask, uh, throw themselves to a uniform officer uh, because they saw something on, on DN, and, and CNN that had to do with DACA. Nobody in Guatemala knows what DACA means. That, that alone Honduras and El Salvador, which, which, is, which is worse. That's number one. The, none of that, however, explains the sadism at the border. What they're doing to these people, what they're doing to these kids, they didn't even make any plans to match them uh, in the future. They, they, they didn't care. They had to come up with a new term called deleted families. Deleted families because they didn't have a term for the, for the, the chaos that they, that they created. When they finally find someone that uh, 
that they might send, like you said, uh, with a court date and so on, somewhere in the United States, and they put the ankle monitors on and so on. Uh, first, they put them in a hielera for five, six days a week. It's a place where temperatures are extremely cold. They have no uh, coats or whatever. They're given this little thin uh, silver blanket uh, and to try to just traumatize these people. And then after the hielera, they put them in a perrera for another, a dog kennel for another week or two weeks until finally they sent them to the bus stations with the, with the ankle monitors. Where in the heck is there any uh, justification for that? Okay, let Thank me, you. Let, you got two minutes, so let me get my two minutes. And the fact is that, as I said, unfortunate bad conditions in the home country are a necessary condition. Nobody's going to leave if their countries are fine and stable and everything's going great. The reason they're deciding now to leave, even though the murder rate has consistently declined in all of those countries over the past five years, even though agricultural production, broadly speaking, has consistently increased in all of those countries for most of the major crops that they grow, the reason people are deciding that, boy, you know, this is terrible, the gangs are bad, I can't earn a living, I'm, but what am I going to do? I'm going to go to America because they're going to let me stay. That is the essential calculation, that we are letting people in, even though they don't qualify for asylum, because the vast majority do not qualify under the law for asylum. They are turned down, but they are not returned home. They get away with it, that's why more people come. There's, no, there's, there's nothing else complicated about it. And let me make one last point, since I only used one minute now of my time. You used um, a minute and a half. Mexico is what also a signatory to the UN Convention, both the UN Convention and the UN Protocol, on the status of refugees. The, the protocol, the UN Treaty that we uh, ratified in 1968, I think it was, that we ratified it, says that an illegal immigrant has to be considered for asylum. You can't just say no just because they're illegal immigrants. But only if they came directly from the country where they were persecuted. These people have an obligation to ask for asylum in Mexico. They have relatives here, though. They know the wages are higher here. So large numbers of them, the majority of them, some of them do apply in Mexico. The vast majority keep going because they know they're going to be let in and let go. Okay, thank you. So this is the final question, and then we're going to take audience questions. And it, it's kind of a personal question for me, but I think it's one that we should all be concerned about, which is that the country is very divided now. And immigration is a particularly polarizing and divisive issue. It's really the wedge in our polity right now. And I, and I wanted to know, does this worry you two as thinkers and advocates and scholars on these issues? And if it does, how do we get to a better place as a nation? So what do we do? do I... You answer it. No, who goes first? Oh. <laughs> Whoever wants to. Yeah. I'll go first. Okay. Um, clearly, there's no question uh, the immigration is an extremely divisive issue, but it's not... It's more um, an epiphenomenon. The, the, the deeper problem is that immigration really isn't a, uh, immigration is, a, uh, is an indication, a symptom of not so much a right-left division, but broadly speaking, more an up-down division. And you see this in Europe as well. Our 
political classes and our elite classes, I mean, elite in the broad sense, not using it in a derogatory term, but sort of every society has leadership classes, people who are the influential voices in business and academia and media and in government and in whatever, philanthropy and religion. Our leadership classes, our elites, are disconnected from the views of the broad public. This is that, that disconnect is the reason a guy like Trump can get elected president. I mean, you know, it, it was the idea of President Trump was a joke on The Simpsons, and everybody got that it was ludicrous, but that market opportunity was there because our elite classes were not responding to the concerns of the public on this issue. You're seeing the same thing in all the European countries. It's immigration is, is kind of where that shows up most um, acutely, and that's why it happens this way. And I mean, there's been research on this. What used to be called the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations years ago did public opinion polling, opinion polling on regular, broad, you know, um, scientifically done telephone polling of the public. Then they asked the same questions of a broad spectrum of um, elites, opinion leaders, I think is how they called them, but the same idea. And the issue that had the biggest gap between elite concerns and public concerns, elite and public preferences, was immigration. And it is precisely that unwillingness of our leadership classes, and again, this is not just political, I'm talking about broadly, business leadership, religious, academic, media. The disconnect from the concerns that the public has is what makes this issue so contentious and so acute, and until there is some kind of responsiveness to the concerns of very large shares of the public, you're gonna to continue to have this kind of roiled politics. And, you know, Trump's gonna get reelected next year precisely because of this. And you wanna to respond to well, that. Well, on that uh, happy note, <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned public opinion. Uh, you mentioned elites, you mentioned publics. Elites are not one homogeneous entity. Publics are not one homogeneous entity. Public opinion polls on immigration don't reflect a homogeneous position on immigration. Here's one from the Gallup poll from two months ago. According to Gallup, 67% of Americans, the public, think immigration levels should either stay the same or increase and 75% think immigration is, quote, a good thing, an all-time high, and this is just now, with Trump in the White House. Over the past two years, the percentage who want to restrict immigration from cur current levels has averaged 30%, the lowest figure since Gallup began asking this question in 1965. The polls uh, here in California, uh, are even more so than that, I'll refer to that in my closing comments in just a moment. Um, but you mentioned the country is very divided now. Immigration is particularly polarizing. Does this worry me? And what do we do about it? Yeah, it worries me a lot. Uh, but uh, the country was also very divided back in the 60s, as I recall, and in the early 70s. Um, the Vietnam War, all the social movements, uh, and so on. And yet it was during this period um, that uh, some of the most inclusive le legislation that has been passed on immigration uh, in this country's history was passed. The 65 uh, Act, or the amendments uh, in, in 65, um, the Refugee Act of 1980, 
in which the United States assumed responsibility, uh, historic responsibility, for resettling the lion's share of, of those uh, of refugees. Um, a legalization program for 2.7 million people with IRCA. And then in 1990, the, the Immigration Act of 1990, which among other things, tripled the number of skill-based visas. Um, now, there's no gainsaying the fact that one guy came down the escalator in June of 2015 and proceeded to tell the world that Mexicans are rapists and they're criminals and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and he's going to build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. And then he went off the rails, not only during the campaign, but in the more than 10,000 lies that he registered as of Monday, uh, and in all the all-cap tweets that, that he ends up, he is governing by rallies and all-cap tweets. Uh, this is not how you're going to get to a recent immigration policy. And um, that is not something that's going to uh, be amenable to a solution of come let us reason together and let's bring our, ba our best facts. That's going to require a political solution. And uh, I don't see you know, any gain saying of that. As to your I, prediction that Trump is going to win next year, I, I think that, uh, I don't know where you're getting, reading your tea leaves, but... Uh, yeah, it's, uh, one, of, one of you is saying it's the dark before the dark, and the other is saying it's the dark, dark before, before the, the dawn. dawn yeah. <laughs> but is there, it really honestly, just to kind of wind this up, is there anyone in public life looking to solve this challenge at this point? It doesn't seem like that there is. Or is it just like a political and ideological football? No, I, don't, I don't know that... I mean, I don't know if football is even the right word. I think the core problem is a fundamental lack of trust on the part of the public regarding the leadership mm -hmm. class of our country. This is the betrayal of 1986, which Ruben agrees was a failure because the assurances of Pretty enforcement never happened. That shadow, the shadow of that betrayal continues to darken our immigration policy today. It is the reason that President Bush's push for amnesty failed in two, finally failed in 2007. It was, took two years of going back and forth. No one believed the assurances that, they, that the Congress was making that this time we're serious. It's kind of like um, uh, Wimpy was a character in the old Popeye cartoons, and he would say, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. That was one of his taglines. And he never paid after he got the money to buy the hamburger. Well, that's the issue here. I'll gladly pay you with enforcement for an amnesty today. We may, agreed to that deal. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It was a lie. And it was, I don't mean a mistake, it was a lie. The people who made the deal, the pro-amnesty people, knew they were going to Welsh on it. They had planned it. And in 1990, they attempted to legalize employment of illegal immigrants, which was the core enforcement concession. In other words, to go back on it. They were, this was Ted Kennedy, Orrin Hatch, and the National Council of Raza tried to re-allow, to change the law so you could hire illegal immigrants again. Only Coretta Scott, Coretta Scott King stopped them by going public and saying she wouldn't go for it. That, the, the lack of trust is the reason the Gang of Eight bill back in 2013 ultimately failed. There was no confidence that the assurances that immigration enforcement would happen in the future would happen. Okay. And until that lack of trust, that trust gap is, is um, if, if fixed, it's not, we're not going to have any progress on immigration. Okay. Don, you, you, you said that you thought that uh, 
not that many people, not, nothing much is happening right now. It's, it's, I, in terms of a real, a real resolution to this politically, no. Oh, legislative. Legislative. No. Yeah. Yeah. Legislatively, uh, that's a a very messy political process. It entails all kinds of horse trading when it finally succeeds. And so by the time you actually pass a law, the law has so many internal contradictions to it that in, during the implementation of it, it ends up having all sorts of un, unanticipated consequences, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why immigration laws are, uh, are riven by, by these kinds of... However, I see lots of people, including the Center for Migration Studies in New York, including all kinds of people that are continually doing first-rate work, uh, trying to do, get to the best science available, the best recent facts, the best uh, knowledge base, on which uh, such a recent policy can be made. So I, I don't see people taking, uh, going uh, to watch uh, Game of Thrones or binging Game of Thrones because I, I don't want... They're not uh, bailing out. No. They are uh, redoubling, I think, their, their commitments to that kind of work. Um, but that alone, as I've been trying to say, is not going to uh, change the current state of politics. Um, next thing you know, uh, Trump will email a, uh, what do you call it, tweet somebody tweet. and call him wimpy something. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, he's, that's about the one insult that he hasn't used yet, so maybe I shouldn't put it out there. Uh, <laughs> But in order to get to this, uh, you're going to get to you're going to have to get to the the, the political problem first. Uh, it, this is not going to be a gang of eight. This is not going to be come let us reason together in right. good faith because there's none out there. Right. Okay. So we're thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.